Well, the Hebrew book of Esther is about rule and reign. I say that because the Hebrew word melech, M-L-K, occurs some 250 times, whereas any word for God is absent from the book. It's one of the only books in the Bible, sweet, that doesn't mention God. In fact, I think it is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. And it's a book, therefore, that many churches overlook, likely because of this fact. But God is in it throughout. So it's about rule and reign, and we see how rule can be abused if not given into the hands of a loving God. The book is also about feasts. There are eight feasts or banquets mentioned in Esther from beginning to end. And again, the nature of the feasts vary from a lavish banquet which lasted 180 days to celebrate the king's imperial power and wealth to a feast to celebrate the survival of the Jewish faith in every province. At the same time as King Xerxes was giving a second lavish feast with an abundance of wine served in solid gold goblets, each one unique, Queen Vashti was giving a banquet for the women. And after seven days of indulgence, the king decided to summon his queen to show off her beauty. To which Queen Vashti said no, as we've already heard. She said no to a bully used to demanding his own way. King Xeres wanted to parade his queen like some sort of prized possession before the bigwigs and the powers that be. As one Bible commentary puts it, he saw Queen Vashti as another of his wonderful possessions, something to be shown off, something that would impress. The invitation or command to Queen Vashti to attend him in her crown was not an attempt to enjoy her company, but rather display her as an object. The opportunity to appear before the other state leaders was not for Vashti's benefit, of course, it was purely for the king's own edification, to have his ego stroked, all because he expected people to do exactly what he demanded. Now you might be thinking, and I agree, that there are world leaders like that in our own day, causing havoc across the world, trying to maintain some degree of rule, often through violent means. And it's not easy to stand up to bullies Few have the courage to do so. One of my earliest memories was when I was in primary school and there was a local bully, Robert. I'm not going to give you his full name because I'm, well, I'm not sure if he's still alive, but judging by the way he acted in school, he might not be. But anyway, Robert was a local school bully and he came from a notorious family. You all know Robert, don't you? And one day he decided that he didn't like me. Can you believe it? <laughs> and he followed me into the courtroom during break time. I had no idea what I'd done wrong, but he just came up to me and stared at me, his face inches away from mine. To which I said, sorry. <laughs> Even though I didn't think I'd done anything that might have caused his anger, it didn't help me though for he punched me in the face and walked away without saying anything. What a man Robert was, eh? And that was primary one or two. 
It's not easy to stand up to bullies, and I've struggled with it ever since. Few have the courage to do so. Though, in that case, I'm not sure what courage would have looked like. Maybe just to stand there was a courageous thing. Maybe to tell the teacher, but at the time, you didn't do such a thing. For the repercussions would have been even worse. But Queen Vashti summoned the courage that she needed and refused the king's demand. And the king was furious and burnt with anger. We're not surprised to read that the king's advisers, his wise men, when asked how the king should respond, counseled that Vashti needs to be dealt with harshly because if he didn't, this was going to be the start of a slippery slope towards women's rights. God forbid. Before they knew it, women everywhere would be going to be saying no to their husbands and the whole world would be thrown into disarray. Their advice was basically that women must respect their husbands and should be taught a lesson on how important this is. And so a decree was sent out stating that every man should be ruler, there's that word again, ruler over his own household. One commentator points out how ridiculous this decree was since it would be impossible to enforce behind locked doors and indicates that men were not actually dominant in their households that they needed to be told. However, this idea of men dominating households seems to have stuck even in certain contemporary biblical circles. But let me point out that this sort of viewpoint can only be said in the context of reciprocity and only where the nature of the rule or dominance is rooted in love for the other and not in self-interest. In other words, yes, wives are to respect their husbands, but husbands must love their wives as well. If mutual reciprocating love and respect are missing, then the husband-wife relationship is imbalanced and in some cases might even be abusive. We could say that for any relationship indeed, not just for husbands and wives. And so we have Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 5 saying, Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. In Queen Vashti's case, this was the last straw as far as the king was concerned. And so in an, in an attempt to seem strong, he entirely overreacts, says he will never see Vashti again, and she is replaced by a younger model, as we'll find out next week. Enter Esther. It may have been common at the time, but that wasn't love at work in that relationship. The king demonstrates an abuse of power. He may not have been physically abusive, but it was still a violent act. As an aside, I was pleased to see this week that the Church of Scotland is hosting a seminar for men on what every man can do to help prevent violence against women. And I would encourage men to attend. And you'll see a slide of it later in our notices. Because sadly, violence against women is not something confined to the annals of history. And so it was that the king silenced Queen Vashti's no, but her no started a ball rolling that would eventually change everything. This was only the beginning of the king's troubles. King Zeres would have done well to have taken a breath rather than rush into action. His overreaction 
his attempt to argue back is precisely the reason why Vashti's story lived on. Far more people heard about her actions through his decree than would have had he remained silent. He would have done better to say nothing and let the story die on its own. The whole story raises the questions about right and wrong, about the need to persist, about the truth at the heart of any power structure built on inequality, discrimination and terror. There is an anxiety amongst those in power that those they oppress might one day topple them. The advisers and the king may have removed Queen Vashti, but at the heart of this action was the fear that she could bring them all down. So here's a reflection from the Spill the Beans material on this story. What if no is the right answer? It's such a tiny word and carries so much weight. Often it's the hardest answer to give. Our temptation is to please, to say yes, rather than cause hurt or stress, not just for you but for others. No can open doors, not just close them. No can lift weights heavier than a dumbbell. No can save you from sinking beneath the surface of life. No can save others from themselves. No can save the planet instead of causing more damage. No can release the potential in others. What if no is the right answer? What if it has the power to set you free? Freedom to say yes to the right things. It's true that as well as it being hard to stand up to bullies, it can be hard to say no, even although that might be the best answer all round. But sometimes we need to stop doing things because they've run their course or they're no longer life-affirming or life-giving. For those things, we need to say no because we are alive to God's spirit of resurrection. The women arriving at Easter's empty tomb were met with the words of resurrection, he's not here, he's risen. Matthew prefaces these words with the angel saying, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, he's not here, he has risen. Luke's version prefaces that scripture with these words, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. They were no longer to look for life where there was death, they were to say no to death, no to dying things, no to things with no life in them. It's perhaps an interesting aside that the women arriving at the tomb hadn't been going with the intention to look for the living, but it's the angel that interprets their vocation as seeking the living. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Even when we're not looking for it, even in times of mourning, there is a divine force guiding us to seek life. There's a force that helps us to carry on. Like the women seeking Jesus even though he was dead. That is what resurrection is all about. And it affects anything and everything we do and say. We are aiming at life, at hope, at nothing being impossible for God and with God. The risen Jesus, the Christ, said to the women, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. Galilee is where it all started, 
And it's the place symbolic of new beginnings. It's where Jesus' birth took place and his ministry started. And it's where his followers would see him again, this time in risen power. If we too are to go to Galilee and seek Christ, the risen Jesus, what will that mean for each of us? What might we be called to say no to, that we might give our yes to something more? In the light of resurrection, how might we see everything around us with new sight, in new light? Let me finish with a word of resurrection on this second Sunday of Easter. The scriptures declare that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. One commentator puts this into a wonderful invitation to all of us who seek the life of Christ in all. He says, Christ is the light that allows people to see things in their fullness. The precise and intended effect of such a light is to see Christ everywhere else. In fact, that is my only definition of a true Christian. A mature Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone else. That is a definition that will never fail us, always demand more of us, and give us no reasons to fight, exclude, or reject anyone. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are the God of all change through resurrection, the God who brings life from death, the God who overcomes hatred with love, the God who dispels darkness with light. And so we needn't be anxious or upset or worry or be fearful about anything, Lord, because with you nothing is impossible. So walk with us into our next steps and future, we pray, and may we be used as instruments in the building of your kingdom, in this place, and wherever you send us, in Jesus' name, Amen.